0: Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi, I'm a GP and the medical editor of Health Ed. Welcome to our unique podcast series now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Welcome, my name's Ian Porter and I'm a radiation oncologist here to discuss with you therapeutic options for patients with skin field cancerisation. And this is a very interesting topic in terms of uh, what I'd like to outline today is we're looking at, first up, keratinising carcinoma, or known as KC. We'll cover also treatments. We'll talk a little bit about radiotherapy as an option, looking at volumetric modulated arc radiotherapy. We'll cover some case studies, and we'll also look at skin care during treatment as well, a very important part to support patients through their care and then just discuss a little bit about referral options for patients. If we look at our first topic, keratinocyte carcinoma, you've probably always known this as uh, non-melanoma skin malignancies, a little bit of a mouthful really, but keratinizing carcinoma is common and often arising from basal or squamous cells, known as keratinocytes, and they occur in the epidermal layer of the skin so commonly we see these in the marketplace as either basal cell carcinoma or cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. There is a difference in behaviour. Basal cell carcinomas are generally slow growing with a low metastatic risk, often less than half a percent. However, they can become problematic if neglected. They often grow, they can invade or invade nerves, or they're an area of body excision is not possible. This is a particularly difficult topic around the head and neck area. On the other hand, squamous cell carcinomas have a greater ability to grow quickly and can also metastasize more often to organs and lymph nodes. And the rates of spread are often around about 3.7%. And many do have nodal metastasis upon presentation, which means treatment is often more complex and difficult and harder for the patient but there is unfortunately a a low risk of metastatic disease around about 1.5%. But in Australia, our risk is really related to the high incidence and prevalence of this. And perhaps in Australia, we've got far greater experience of this than anywhere else in the world. We often see the incidence is over 3,000 cases per 100,000 person years. And that really equates to a per person rate of about 1,500 Due to people having often multiple lesions. Let's look at the different ratios of the cancer in the community. A basal cell carcinoma is most prevalent of the keratinocyte carcinomas, and from now on I'll refer to that as KCs. And it's about 70% of those diagnoses, whereas cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma is around 30%. When you look at the whole burden for the community and the population, the incidence has continued to increase at around about two to six percent per year for the last 30 years. Death rates, unfortunately, also continue to rise. So if you really think about it, around 70 percent of the population will have at least one KC excised at some point. That's an enormous burden for our community. There are different risk factors for developing KCs. The most important I've already highlighted is the fact that you may have an individual history of previous KCs or multiple AKs. You can have a family history as well. Immunosuppression due to disease or drugs is also a very high risk factor. UV exposure, something we're told about in the community all the time is of great risk. Age, yes, the population's getting older, therefore we'll see more of these conditions and our skin phenotype, an interesting, interesting concept, realising that we're all just not the same in terms of our, our skin and our risk. Let's cover each of those separately. If we look at UV exposure and age, it really is a causative role in around 90% of KCs. In Australia, the further north we go, the risk is higher. So if you look at Queensland, it's around two to three times greater than the national average. And that's probably due to the fact they're closer to the equator and potentially have a higher UV sun exposure. The majority of cases do occur on the sun exposed skin, including the head and neck with estimates probably from around about 55 to 80%. And both BCCs and SCCs are associated with ultraviolet exposure. But SCCs are really more related to cumulative exposure. Whereas BCCs are often related to sunburn events. If we look at uh, the next factor really being age, you can see on the graph here on the right that really over time the relative risk increases with age. So therefore in our community, as the community does age, we're seeing this cancer in a higher rate. I think the other question really is your familial history and the skin phenotype. So really a prior family history of KC's increases that chance of developing BCC's and SCC's by over 2.5%. And that increases when you have a first-degree relative uh, exposed before 50 years old, which so often is a factor in many inherited malignancies. It's always difficult to have it to really precisely define this correlation because many families share the same environmental risk and genetic risk as well. So really, at the end of the day, is it the genes or your lifestyle? And just below on that picture is really a great graph and look I'm probably more towards one or two on that list and it's called the fitzpatrick scale and it really relates to your your pigmentation type and clearly as you have a higher score you've got a lower cancer risk and your uv phenotype becomes more resistant as you move from one to six and that really may in part relate to your epidermal melanin which increases as you move from one to six. I think some of us who are more towards one or two certainly are very envious of others not suffering in the same way in relation to uh, these conditions. So family history is important to cover and skin phenotype is a very important when the patient comes to see you. Other risk also really relates to whether you've had prior skin cancers or precancerous lesions. So if you've already had one lesion, your risk is higher. And this really struck me that 70 or 90% chance of a new KC within three years after two diagnoses. That's me, I'm the same, that that falls into my category. You often have more than one precancerous AK or actinic keratosis is associated with squamous cell carcinoma develop, increasing with time and additional lesions. 74% 74% of KCs are excised from people with multiple lesions. So the critical issue there is once you've had one, you really need to have ongoing follow-up with your health professional. And that's what I do. The probability of an AK transforming into an SCC is variable. Around about 10% can become cancerous if untreated, and transformation's more common if you've had SCCs in the past. And around about 70% of SCCs actually arise from AKs. This increased risk is really related to a concept of field cancerisation, something we're going to cover shortly. When you look at field cancerisation, it's a concept that's really been around for over 70 years. But to be honest, I think the medical community is really taking a great deal of interest in this. And we see many difficult patients arrive in our clinics that as they walk through the door, it's very apparent they fall into this risk group. And it's a subclinical atypia with clinically surrounding normal tissue. It may relate to cumulative sun exposure causing the expansion of mutated cells prone to cancerous transformation. Subclinical oncogenic changes accumulate without visible change. The skin sometimes appears normal, but that often changes over time. And the skin however will continue to accrue UV damage such as pigmentation and actinic keratosis with the presence of some skin cancers. So it really comes back to the old story that sun exposure is not good for us and unfortunately we carry the burden of our exposure throughout our life. So you can see here in this diagram quite nicely how you you really might start out with a few AKs but over time you'll get more extensive disease and significant photoaging over time. And as you move more towards the right, your risk of skin malignancy increases. The important issue really is also covering treatment. And we've really got different treatment options for different stages of cancer. In terms of lesion-based therapy, we're really looking at surgery, and I think that is the gold standard. We're seeing five-year cure rates of over 98% for basal cell carcinomas and a little less for squamous cell carcinomas, probably reflecting their different biology. Another option is radiation therapy and this of course can be adjuvant, that means we're adding definitive as in the main treatment and it can also be palliative as well where you've got patients with incurable disease. And we're seeing five-year local control rates over 90%. Other options can include curatage and cryotherapy. The most important thing really again is follow-up and making sure that you've cleared the disease follow up on the PATH report and make sure in the future that they remain on the surveillance. The next step is really field-based therapy and that's where we're looking at say topical creams like fluorouracil or salicylic acid and many do respond quite well but can be variable in efficacy over time. Photodynamic therapy is also an option and so many of my patients often comment that's a little uncomfortable treatment but again it's all in the hands of the operator. Other oral treatments can include nicotinamide, um, and that has been shown in studies to provide preventive measures as well. In terms of the other option is really combination field and lesion therapy. So really trying to combine both the local treatment and the field-based therapy in one. And that's where radiotherapy really is an option. And VMAT is really a form of radiotherapy. It's 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 a process of delivery which allows us to treat a wider field very successfully, which couldn't be done in the past. And that allows us both to simultaneously treat a large area of heterogeneous disease and also clinically local disease as well. And it has an advantage that it can be used in heavily pretreated patients. I'd like to talk a little bit further about volumetric modulated arc radiotherapy. Let's just call it VMAT for short. And these are some photos of a linear accelerator where you can see the uh, treatment machine head moving around the patient in a 360 degree motion. And The patient can lie comfortably, most often in their civilian clothes. You don't need to wear a gown any, any longer. But you can see the great, great progress in terms of these machines. Is In the old days, they used to use fixed, poured uh, shields. Now, within the mouth of this has what we call multi-leaf collimators, Think of it as a 100 little fine metal shards that can move in and out and shape the beam and strengthen fluence, which really allows us to be very accurate where we want to be. And this is a, let's call it a weather map or what we call an isodose curve, and this is what as a radiation oncologist I commonly check and approve that it meets our high safety criteria. And what you can see here is the difference between a VMAT field and what we call brachytherapy. So brachytherapy is where we used to place small catheters along the surface and have a a very fine isotope within those. The issue with that is it was really very uneven in terms of the dose delivered. So there are a lot of hot spots and also some cold spots as well. So hot spots meant the, the outcome, particularly the cosmetic outcome was not as good. So that's where VMAT has really come in as a technology to allow us to deliver this wide field treatment better. So on the left you can see a scalp, on the right you can see a limb and uh, that's great ability to be able to cover a large area as well. Importantly we can also reduce the dose to normal tissues. So in terms of treatment I think it's important to go through the steps of that and the best way to deliver radiotherapy is over a number of fractions or treatments or days. So usually it's once a day, Monday to Friday, over around about five weeks and sometimes a break is placed within that treatment as either a planned or unplanned break to allow for local recovery and also response and this allows us both to maintain a fantastic clinical outcome but also allow recovery of normal tissues by the next day of treatment and allows us to deliver a high dose of treatment as well it's important within that to obviously allow regular skin checks so within our center we'll have both our radiation therapists our nursing teams as well as the radiation oncologists keeping a regular check on the patient to see how they're tolerating treatment, which is usually excellent, and also managing any expected side effects, particularly towards the end of the course of treatment. But the other beauty is really, it's they're fairly short visits. Perhaps you're in the center around about 20 minutes, but actual treatment time might only be a few minutes. So, so in fact, it's, it's very rapid and quick. And of course, as many of my patients say, it doesn't really involve an anesthetic needle or scalpel. I'd just like to cover just a few case studies as well because we can talk about the facts, but pictures really do help us a great deal further. And this is one patient uh, that I treated who was in 79. He had sort of recurrent, rapidly growing scalp lesion near an area of previous excision, and that's really highlighted quite, quite nicely there in, in the uh, inner circle. And it was biopsied and showed an intraepidermal carcinoma which really is behaving more like an aggressive squamous cell carcinoma in terms of its size and growth rate. And you can also see the very sort of pitted skin there, typical of widespread solar damage. His haircut is not dissimilar to mine, so I'll try to avoid this problem for me in the future. But that's obviously a factor we like to treat at the same time. When you look back on his history, which is so important, he's had a history of extensive sun exposure, multiple BCCs, IECs and solar keratoses in various areas, perhaps he just didn't wear a hat as much as me. Had his first skin cancer quite a few years ago and has had multiple excisions and increasing frequency of this, causing to some degree of frustration. I remember he commented he'd had about 20 lesions excised and finally was so grateful that he'd met an alternative treatment strategy to avoid further surgery. We were able to plan him using uh, a, we use a CT plan initially, where we develop a CT and make this special thermoplastic uh, cover, which is developed with three D printing. So it really is completely customized to the patient, very comfortable, and allows some flexibility as well in terms of movement and, and adjustment for fitting. And then we plan this to deliver around about 45 gray, which is a dose of radiotherapy in 25 treatments. So that's around about 1.8 gray per day, which is a very typical treatment dose per day for what we call a radical or curative course. But where the actual cancer was, we gave a higher dose to 60 gray. Actual macroscopic cancer needs a higher dose. And then we really underwent extensive planning of this with triple checking to make sure we cover the disease we want to. And what I really described to the patients is we're really covering the rind of their skin. And uh, we're really trying to reduce dramatically the dose going near the brain, uh, eyes, or other structures. And we can do that very effectively. And uh, really we develop a weather map, a little bit like the weather map on the news at night. And the high dose is really covered just towards the skin in the colour blue there you can see. And you can see during treatment that he developed slightly more blotchy red skin with very mild erythema, a little bit of an itch, and a little, little extra hair loss. Um, which is very typical and normal of the reaction. Describe it like a light inflammation. And On the right there you can see six weeks after treatment, um, he's got a slightly uh, more prominent haircut and a lot of his hair will grow back over time. But you can see the fantastic cosmetic result with a great clearance of that disease, and particularly that macroscopic disease without the need for further surgery. This is another case of a gentleman that came into the clinic and he was 64 and he had a large BCC on his right shoulder. Um, I've got another case like this at the moment and he's just recovering from some other treatment I gave and he's back to have this treated shortly. He's been delighted with his outcome. And you can see the very severely sun-damaged skin, solar keratosis and intraepidermal carcinomas as well. Again, a lot of sun exposure, multiple excisions, uh, which is usually the norm for this group of patients. He tried topical 5-FU but had quite a brisk reaction to this, very, very painful and, and red, and he really didn't want to retry that again. And given that he'd had very successful radiotherapy previously, he came forward to have treatment with us and actually requested this. Finally, he took his shoot off and showed us this lesion. And you can see there, again, using a, a colour wash to show the dose. In the sort of red area there is the area we treat, and you can see the very rapid dose fall off, so very little of the remaining normal tissues are treated. This did, however, need a slightly higher dose, around 60 grain, 30 fractions, again running that very sort of slow delivery per day to allow the cancer cells to be knocked off and the normal cells to recover. You need about a seven week course with a one week break, and we again use for that personalised 3D printed bolus which our group has developed. Makes it very comfortable for patients. When you actually look at his reaction during treatment, it's normal to have this red reaction. In a way, I describe to patients that that's when the tumour's actually been cleared. And you can see quite rapidly on the right there, about two years after treatment, it's really got a great cosmetic result. He hasn't needed surgery or a large skin graft and the morbidity associated with that. I think during treatment it's important to care for the skin and um, you know there's a lot of various tales out there in the community about this and it's actually relatively simple and skin has a remarkable ability to recover from uh, treatment and, and other, other issues in, as you know in the community. And so the important thing is really maintaining hygiene and hydration. So you know just wash, wash the area very carefully, uh, use a skin barrier. Such as a cream or moisturizer, and really just avoid the area getting dry, because many of the normal uh, moisturizing uh, organs in the skin are just not working as well at that time. So you need, just need to add an add a moisturizer externally, and we use many different products, including QV, uh, Cetaphil, uh, and certainly hydrogel creams may be used, like such as Flammagel or Soya Gel, if there's a slightly larger break in the skin. Patients often say, is this a burn? And I say, no, it's not a burn. It's just an inflammation, and it will heal very rapidly. The other issue is also making sure you're just not having sort of clothes rubbing up against an area that's sore. It really is sort of common sense. And you really wanna just avoid sun exposure, Um, you know, just try to avoid shaving, uh, because the skin will be a little bit more sensitive, and uh, really just protect it as you would if you had a simple graze on your skin. In terms of referral and guidance, you know, what patients do I really ultimately see? And this is always very hard to remember. And um, when would you consider radiotherapy or referral to a radiation oncologist like me? And uh, I think really just remember as primary care specialist, you'll be able to manage many of the keratinocyte carcinomas yourself effectively and capably, and you'll achieve excellent control rates with the treatment you deliver as a radiation oncologist, I'll probably become involved when skin field cancerisation is an issue or patients don't want to go down that path of surgery and looking for a non-invasive form of treatment. So really we see often with severe skin field cancerisation, patients concerned about cosmetic outcome. So a large part of my practice is actually often um, many ladies coming to have their nose area treated to avoid uh, surgery or skin flaps where there's sort of failure of other therapies and really seeking alternative options. There are high-risk lesions which are either incompletely excised or have other high-risk features like perineural invasion. You can have high-risk disease where patients have other disease in the area previously or have recurred. And some patients just refuse surgery and want to come forward for another alternative definitive treatment option. I've mentioned perineural invasion already, a very important risk factor and can be sometimes life-threatening. And radiotherapy has that ability to hop ahead and try to treat that nerve before it can spread further. And obviously recurrent lesions are also an issue as well that we, we're often involved treating. But the most important thing is really access in both uh, residential, urban and rural areas. And in terms of Genesis Care, we've got many sites around Australia. But importantly, thank you for your time. And uh, should you have any further questions, please reach out to us. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.